Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Liz Mitchell, and welcome to Bring It On a multiple award-winning radio show broadcast in our 18th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening. I'm guest co-anchor Natalia Galvin. Once again, the primary elections take place Tuesday, May 2nd here in Monroe County. Early voting began April 4th and ended today, Monday, May 1st. In Monroe County, Bloomington will elect a mayor, city clerk, and common city council members. The town of Ellettsville will elect a clerk and treasurer and representatives to the town council from three wards. This week, we are completing our interviews with candidates seeking the Democratic Party's nomination for mayor of Bloomington. Again, they are Don Griffin, Susan Sandberg, and Carrie Thompson. Tonight, we are speaking with mayoral candidate Carrie Thompson, who is the executive director of Indiana University Center for Rural Engagement. She is the former CEO for Habitat for Humanity of Monroe County. Carrie, welcome to Bring It On. Welcome, Carrie. I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, now what i like to start off with, affordable housing. That seems to me, uh, around people who I've been talking to, is uh, a big issue in Bloomington. Supposedly, to live here is more expensive than Carmel, Indiana, which that's ridiculous. So why should anybody move here that doesn't have a huge salary? How are they going to afford it? How do we entice people to get here when we don't have affordable housing? That's one. And to piggyback, what is the dollar amount of an affordable house? Yes. So when we talk about affordable housing, um, HUD sets those guidelines based on family size. Um, and But to, to the average Bloomingtonian, we don't want to get into all of those ratios that HUD gets into. And so when you're when you're really looking at how do we entice people to either come here or stay here when they don't have a tremendous salary, we need to look at everything from subsidized housing, of which we have very few vouchers available, to workforce housing. Um, and that's going to look more like... Uh, um, probably some multifamily housing that um, that we don't currently have that is not marketed towards students. Um, right now, I, I always say that we live in a, um, a, a very special housing economy in Bloomington, um, where the majority of renters that we have actually are not paying themselves for the rent. And so the income for that rent is sourced out of town. And um, furthermore, they pay by the bedroom. But if you're talking to a single mom with some kids, she's not interested in a unit that is 
paid for by the bedroom. Um, she just needs an adequate place for her family. And in order to get the housing that we need, um, we really need to take the 2020 housing study off the shelf. And we have created some affordable units in the past few years, um, but really very few of them are targeted towards um, the workforce and people that um, that are in that middle place where they don't qualify for subsidy and they also can't afford market rate the way it is. Um, and so some ideas that I have, and I do have a five point housing plan on my, um, on my website, but I think in, in the home ownership model for those, um, who are interested in owning homes, I think that we really need to look at some shared equity, um, models where, uh, we may be able to do some down payment assistance. And then when the home sells, that equity is shared um, back in turn for the um, assistance that uh, was created. We also need, I think, to look at activating some unused spaces in our community. Um, for instance, for the last 10 years and more than that, even, um, we have had a zoning code that requires first floor commercial in, um, in the larger multifamily, um, residential developments, much of that commercial is sitting vacant. And, um, so we should look at what, um, what commercial is needed. We certainly don't want to deepen food deserts and things like that. Um, but then activate some of the um, those spaces for um, for residences and or things that are actually needed in the neighborhoods. How can we incentivize some neighborhood daycares? Um, how can we do some micro grocery stores and things like that that are close to where people live so they don't have to be paying transit to get to these places? That's a, thank you for that answer. Uh, I have one more question before I turn it over to Natalie. Three great candidates are running for mayor. Can you tell our listening audience why you believe you would be a better mayor than the other two? We do have three really wonderful people running for mayor. Um, I am the only uh, candidate for mayor that has held the the very top level executive position in um, in organizations now for the last twenty five years. It is um, it's different than any other leadership uh, position because when you are the top level executive and you are ultimately responsible for what happens and what when there's a problem there is nowhere else to turn um other than the top level executive um i do stay up at night worried about the people who work with me um the people whose job it is who's who's um who it is my job for whom that i i it is my job to keep them safe to keep them employed and the implications of our work. Um, are we meeting our um, our goals? Because in every role I've ever had, I've um, I've led really a mission driven organization that aims to assist communities and people. And um, so, if we are not meeting our goals, it means that people are not thriving um, because we are not getting where we need to be. That's really different than writing policy or um, be, being a um, 
an administrator that is part of a collective team, but not the one that um, where where the buck really stops. Um, and um, and I've had tremendous success actually getting things done um, in those roles. Harry, no great answers. Um, I just let's go back to housing um, very quickly. So, um, uh, as you know, that's a very um, that's a, a a subject in our community that has a lot of very strong opinions and stuff. Um, one of the um, uh, one of the concerns about uh, growth and stuff is that uh, neighborhoods feel. Uh, like they they are being cha- like they're being changed. Uh, change is being forced upon them um, with this growth. And uh, one of the neighborhoods is uh, Cresma, so they're seeing a lot of developments um, around uh, their their neighborhood, kind of all around them. With the Crescent Bend area, um, you're seeing a lot of student developments going in that area. How would you um, respond to um, their concerns and concerns of other neighborhoods? that um, they are going to be priced out of their um, area of that, that they're, that they live in um, with, with all this growth. I, I think those are really very real concerns. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's not a concern that is, um, that is uh, isolated in Crestmont. Um, I was knocking doors yesterday and um, met a 73 year old woman who has been in her house um, for 50 years. And she's worried now that she can't afford to stay there. She has a fixed income. That's unacceptable. Um, we need to find ways for people to be able to stay where they are, because part of the housing picture is the retention of housing and the security of the housing that we already have. It's not just about creating new housing. Um, and as I've talked to people and, and knocked doors and heard the, the various stories of not only the um, people in the homes, but the parents and the children of people in homes and how, um, how the housing scarcity has really affected them, I really think that in, in addition to looking at the new units or activated units, reactivated units that we need, the city may need to consider a program um, that directly addresses housing security. Um, how can we assist to keep people in their homes if they're already there? That it's a you know, with student housing now next door to to Crestmont, it's a reality that the prices are probably going to go up. Are there any programs that? you are looking at, you know, like best practices programs, like real programs that, um, you know, uh, residents could kind of look to or, you know, um, uh, because of the reality of that? You know, I, I have, I just last night started thinking about it. Um, and I haven't done the research yet to see who else is doing it. And if there is some kind of best practice, um, I know that, you know, uh, many years ago, when the housing crash happened, um, there were um, there were some loan programs for elderly um, elderly folks that were forgiven when the um, for, for the life of whoever's living there. But then, if the title transfers, then it becomes um, repayable. Um, so that would then, you know, if your housing cost then is skyrocketing so much or your, you know, the the price of your house, 
then, but you can't tap that income, right? Um, but when you choose to sell, that equity would all be cash. And so you could repay that at the time. Those kinds of programs have been very successful. Um, so um, I think that we could look at programs like that. I have not looked at anything more up to date, um, but I, I think the program should be out there and um, and we are creative and smart in Bloomington. We can come up with something. Right, very good. Um, another thing that's, that's a concern to a lot of people is um, the unsheltered or the unhoused. And people have in their head that that population is growing. Um, I was told by one of the candidates that it's not, but it appears that it's growing and that they're, they're everywhere. How do we address that situation? And why do you think so many people are concerned about this, about the resources? And is it a drain on uh, the taxes of those who are paying taxes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, I want to, um, I want to get straight about what we're really talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, most people, when they're talking about the problem with the unhoused, and I put that in quotes since we're mm-hmm. on the radio, um, they're really talking about the street homeless. Um, there are a lot of people that are unhoused that we never see and they are being, they have services and um, they frequently it's rare and brief and they get rehoused. Um, and our hope is that then it's non-repeating, right? You may be unhoused for a small period of time. And then um, once you're rehoused, you can you can be successful and um and move on to this perhaps the worst period of your life right um but when i have really gotten curious with people about what they're talking about they are talking about the people that they are seeing on the street that are that do not have the services that they need mm-hmm. and frequently and and so i want to be clear when we're talking about how to solve the challenge with unhoused mm-hmm. housing is that answer, right? <laughs> if you're unhoused, you need a house. The problem though, that most people are talking about is the, um, the crisis levels of mental health and um, substance use disorder that we're seeing. Um, so these are, I, I'm separating these very intentionally. And because of the new street drugs, Many of the people who are in chaotic drug use have symptomology that they, they cannot, um, they cannot really tolerate a shelter environment. Um, and so we have a new challenge. It's not a challenge that's unique to Bloomington. It's happening with fentanyl and the new meth everywhere. Um, but this is going to, this is going to, um, necessitate a solution that is different than we have had before. And it's going to need to be a long-term solution that provides mental health and addictions care to those who are really in crisis. And in order to, you know, we're carrying community. And, um, and so many people have a challenge with this because we look at what's happening and we say, 
can't we do something? I don't want to live in a community that can do no better than people suffering on the streets. The other thing that people are saying, though, is that sometimes this behavior that's exhibited is erratic and unsafe, and they also want to feel safe. And so while we're putting together this mental health and substance use coalition that really needs to work hand in hand with heading home as well, we also need a public safety plan so that people in our community know what to do when they're seeing something that's unsafe and they know that they can call a number and that whomever is in crisis is not going to be locked up for the rest of their lives. They're going to get the resources that they need. Just to kind of dig into that a little bit more, um, when you're talking about the coalition being formed, um, I, I love to hear it. Um, I was on the Heading Home Revamp. Um, in 2021, kind of studying um, some of the different uh, communities that are built for zero communities. Very proud of our city that we're the first built for zero city in Indiana. I I think that you're right. We have a lot of like hope and, you know, promise here. Just to dig into that a little bit more, what do you see as um, um, the city investment under your uh, mayoral leadership um, and, and input into... Um, those coalitions and into that work. Mm-hmm. So I want to give um, Pete Youngman some incredible cr- credit here. Um, Pete is a model of what can happen when you have a powerful convener. He convened uh, what became the Stride Coalition. It worked for years um, to to open the Stride Center, um, and I I very much will take a page out of Pete's book. The city can be an incredible convener. It doesn't mean that the city needs to pay for everything, um, but the city can absolutely convene the team to the table and facilitate the process strategically so that all partners can come with their best work. And importantly, we can see what's missing in our community Um, because I don't think that we have everything that we need here. Uh, Most notably, There is a lot of opioid settlement money. Um, Some of it has been distributed to communities, community by community. The rest of it, though, sits at the state, and that will be distributed by the state. I believe that Bloomington is is experiencing more than their proportion um, of the drug crisis. I think we should demand more than our share of the opioid settlement money. I also think that for a small city with such a large problem, we really could innovate. We can pilot some things and see if they work that a large city like San Francisco can't do. And we may be able to innovate our way into being a model for the rest of the country in how you actually decrease this problem instead of letting it build and build and build. Okay, great. Um, let's talk about the annexation. <laughs> I know here's another big topic. Uh, I've met people for it and people that are against it. Are you for it or against it and why either way? I am against the process and for the concept of annexation. Okay. How's that? <laughs> um, this process was done to people instead of with people. And 
I am a leader that always, always believes that we need to move at the speed of trust. And we need to bring um, bring people along with us. And even if, even if you make a mistake of saying, here's what we're doing and head out there with something as large as annexation, when people start reacting so vehemently, it means that they are scared. <laughs> and so we probably should talk to them about what they're scared about. Because I have a feeling, in fact, I know some of the some of the fears are not based in reality. It's simply unknowing. I met a man who's in the county who's really ticked off that annexation is happening. And he thought that as soon as annexation happens, he's going to have to put $10,000 of sidewalks in front of his house the day that he gets annexed. And he doesn't have that kind of money. Well, that's not true. Right. And so a little bit of listening can go a long way. And then we can dispel the myths and, and have a real conversation about what's real. Do I think the city's boundaries need to expand? Yes, I do. I do believe that. I just think we've botched the process. Okay. Thank you very much. For those listeners who just turned in, we are talking to mayor candidate, Carrie Thomas Thompson who is the executive director of Indiana University Center for Rural Engagement, and she is the former CEO for Habitat for Humanity of Monroe County. Now, you talked about uh, you do think that we need the annexation. Uh, What about the uh, police department? Would that be putting a strain on them? I know for a fact we're short of police. Um, I don't know how we're going to hire people that don't want that job now. So what are your suggestions for that? Yeah. So I, you know, the police are already strained and we need a plan if this annexation goes through. Um, the other thing I would say about annexation is we, we bit off a big chunk here. (laughs) Um, if I had been mayor at the time, obviously I wasn't, um, I would have been um I would have been more interested in incremental annexation. Um there is a fiscal plan that had to be in place before annexation was filed. Um and that plan has to accommodate for police, et cetera, et cetera. I am concerned about where we are right now with the police department in a city our size and with annexation, if it does go through, we will really need to do some significant work uh, to bolster that department and ensure that um, ensure that our public safety is um, is covered. Just to dig into that a little bit more, um, I uh, serve on the city's uh, Board of Public Safety. And so one of the things that um, we're aware of, as, as uh, you mentioned earlier, is um, our um, that, you know, uh, we're being poached, right? That's the term when different departments uh, from the state or different or all over um, kind of come um, both with our police and fire and see very well-trained, um, you know, uh, attractive, you know, employees and and try to poach them uh, to move into their uh, municipality. And we're seeing Holcomb um, suggest 
that um, uh, Indiana state troopers should start at 70,000, which is significantly higher than where we're starting uh, Bloomington Police Department officers at. What are some um, some things? I mean, uh, we all know that the city council weighs in, you know, um, in terms of um, the, they're the fiscal body for our city. But where what are some immediate um, changes you would like to see? Um, within, you know, the first couple months of uh, Thompson administration regarding uh, uh, police and fire pay and recruitment retention. Yeah. So I've talked a lot about the police and the challenge, both police and fire, and the challenges that they're facing. Um, You know, pay is all union-based. And so that requires sometimes months and months of negotiation. And so you know, the the things that can be immediate, though, um, people leave for many reasons. Uh, they also stay um, if they love what they're doing. And there is a morale issue right now on our police force. Um, I will assure not only the police force, but our fire department and the other city staff that I am a leader that will have their backs. That goes a long way, um, knowing that your leader will stand behind you as long as you're following protocol and, um, you know, and, and following our systems and, and policies. Um, I, I believe that a leader should give credit to their team and take responsibility when things don't go well. Um, that is, that's the chief executive's role. Um, and so having their back can, can go a long ways and, listening to them. Um, they, they are our public safety experts. Um, it is, I am not an expert in public safety. They should be advising and have a very clear and strong voice about what our policies should be and, and what they need to move forward. Um, having some autonomy and having somebody honor the expertise that you bring to the table goes a long way with morale. And I'm going to circle back to the question that we talked about um, two questions ago, I think, um, which is the um, the substance use and mental health crisis that we're facing. Um, I've done ride-alongs with the police and fire, and um, they are really feeling like there is a, a mountain that's growing and not shrinking um, of uh, a mental health and substance use crisis in this community. And they're, they're dealing with sometimes the same individuals day after day after day. And it's, um, it's, I'm trying to use a word other than firefighting was <laughs> I'm talking about fire. Um, but it's, you know, you, you address it and it comes back the next day. And so this mental health and substance use coalition, having a strategy and a plan for how we can improve things and having a public safety plan that we'll stand by, I think we'll go a long way towards that police and fire morale. Now the utilities and everything have gone up. Taxes have gone up. Yeah. Paying for trash pickup and stuff like that. And you just mentioned somebody's on a fixed income and they're afraid I'm on a fixed income. Um, I don't know if there's any answer to that. We know that things are going to go up. But then I ask myself, what am I really getting for all of that? Um, it, it's 
it's problematic, especially for my side of town. There's this neighborhood is retired people. And so you have any answers to that or any idea or if anything that you can give us a ray of hope? <laughs> you know, I, I think that a lot of people share your sentiment. Um, you know, I was a little astounded that we got a press release, um, a, a prideful press release that we are so proud that during this administration, we have nearly doubled the city budget. Well, has your quality of life doubled? So <laughs> we need some fiscal accountability. We have not had a recent audit. Um, the audit that has been published is years old. I ran, a, I, I now have run two different multi-million dollar organizations. When we close out our books at Habitat, now I work for the university now, so I'm this much of a big audit. When we closed out our, um, our books at Habitat, I immediately started an audit. That is our system to know that our accounting principles and practices are, um, are sound that there is um, no evident fraud happening. Mm -hmm. And it gives you a very clear picture of where your money is and how it's really being spent. In addition to what you owe, what those encumbrances are, and so that you're not misreading a bank balance as, as having permission to spend. Um, our people deserve that. And um, as, as your mayor, I will get a private independent audit every single year. I will not wait for the state board of accounts to get around to it. Um, every, the, the past administrations have done that. All three of the former mayors are working with me on my campaign. They all have said that that's, that is best practice. And we have not been doing that. Um, there is inflation. I, you know, I, I know things are just more expensive period. I, I'm not, uh, insinuating any um, malintent. I'm just saying that the that many people are saying, why is it twice as expensive? We could answer that really clearly and transparently with a good audit and a financial report that our residents can read. Okay. Having just uh, having just watched a, a recent CGRC meeting, my question is about city and county relations. Uh, clearly, there are a lot of very big, um, you know, uh, issues to tackle it that you know um, will fall under um, the next mayor, right? With our convention center and then possibly the new jail. What um, what does um, like what does an administration under um, Carrie Thompson kind of look like um, in order to work with our our county leadership, uh, the county council and uh, the county commissioners. Mm -hmm. I'm really eager to um, to work with the county and um, in fact, have been in conversation with several county leaders already um, who are also eager to repair these these um, relationships. Um, you know, I, I think partnership is the key um, and partnership needs to be co-equal. Um, that also means that if I'm the only one who wants a positive uh, relationship, it, you know, I can't magically make it happen. Um, but it also means that when I come to the table, I will come to the table with something other than a demand or 
simply an opinion. Um, I will come to the table with something to offer, um, whether it's fiscal resources or, or services or something else. Um, that's what partnership is about. And, um, and so I will uh, presume goodwill and um, move forward in trying to, um, to build these partnerships in a really healthy way. When the, when the city is thriving, the county is, is also lifted up and vice versa. And the same is true with the university. You know, we, we also do not have a great relationship with the university right now. Um, that needs to change. Um, we, we need to be working with these partners because if, if one partner is thriving, the other, it will lift the other's boat. And, um, and it's in our best interest to do that. Kind of related. Um, we saw the state legislature kind of weigh in about our convention center, which I'm sure you're aware of. What are your thoughts on uh, any movement um, in that direction, just regarding the convention center as a whole? Like what would, what would uh, Mayor Carrie Thompson like to see with that? I'd like that um, capital improvement board. Um, that seemed like a um, a very fair proposal. Three members from the county, three members from the city, and one that they choose together. That's incredibly balanced. It also takes the ego of all of the politicians out of it. Not to say I have an ego, but <laughs> um, you know, it's it's not about running, running for office or reelection or what your legacy is. It's interested residents who have some expertise at the table and they're not defending for reelection or anything else. They just are there to get the job done. Other communities have CIBs that have been really successful. If we can make a success with this, with the convention center, then it, it could also do some other things for us in the county city relationship. It could really be a bridge builder. Um, so I'm pretty enthusiastic about the CIB. I've watched it work in other communities. And what they've done is visionary and incredibly successful, and it contributes to the communities. Can you explain to our listening audience, please, what you mean by CIB? Yeah, it's a capital improvement board. And so this would be a board that would make the fiscal decisions for um, for the convention center. And, um, and really lead the way for the development of that, um, convention center. And it is a, um, a board that would have decision making authority so that, um, we would remove, um, remove those decisions from those elected officials and then trust, uh, trust that decision making process with the, with the CIB, with the Capital Improvement Board. Um, now you had talked about, uh, I hope I got this right. I'm trying to go using my memory bank here, which at my age is not very good, but you talked about, uh, the council and having someone look, monitor over the council. And have I got that right? Like a group no. over that or am I wrong? I don't think we've talked about the council much. Okay. All righty. So maybe I got something twisted there. I apologize about that. Um, another question I have is, you know, the buck stops with the mayor here in this city, right? And, and That's you, right. And you've even said that. So can you stand firm on difficult decisions without the influence of a particular group or an organization? I can and I have. 
Um, you know, th- that, that has been my job, um, less so at the Center for Rural Engagement, because I am not the top executive in the entire, um, university. Obviously, that's the president. Um, but at Habitat, that was my job for 20 years. Um, I had to make the hard decisions and then take the fall if they weren't good. And, you know, with every decision, there's always, there's almost always some, somebody who doesn't like something. Um, some mm-hmm. are more contentious than others. And, um, there were several times in my, um, leadership at Habitat that we had very publicly highly contentious, um, issues going on, um, that I had to navigate. And, um, and I'm really proud of the way we did that um, over and over again by taking what was not always the fast route that may leave a lot of people behind, but was the intentional route that built a bigger win in the end. Um, And so the best example I have of that is um, when we were creating the Trailview neighborhood and the neighborhood, the neighborhoods around it were really not happy with us. Mm -hmm. Um, and I always say that we never did a project at, um, at Habitat that wasn't contentious because amazingly, nobody ever wakes up and says, Oh, you're going to build a house next door to me for a person that doesn't have a lot of money and says, I'm, I'm for it. Instead, what we usually got was, you know, we don't want you here. Go, go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so I would work months in advance of ever having a homeowner who would have to face that and talk to the neighbors about who Habitat was, the kinds of families we work with and how the process works. Because again, there were a lot of myths. People thought we gave the houses away. Once they found out that people bought the houses and worked for their house, there was a different image, right? So we're doing trail view neighborhoods came out to every single plan commission and um, city council meeting to speak out against us. And I worked with them and worked with them and worked with them. And I am really proud that at the last city council meeting before they approved this neighborhood, the leader of the coalition against habitat came to that council meeting to speak in support of our neighborhood. And that's what can be done. If you truly listen and you address people's concerns mm-hmm. and whatever fears there are, whether you want to speak them or not, we try to get them out there at, at least one-to-one, put them on the table and see what I can do to address the, the worry and the fear. And and that's how we can move forward. And, and as an executive, that's the kind of roll up your sleeves work that I'm willing to do and I have done. And if you still don't like it, then yes, I put my name on it and you can still yell at me. It's okay. Maybe we'll agree on something else. (laughs) Well, speaking of those hard conversations and kind of bringing people to the table and getting their thoughts and leadership and and all of that, um, climate change, right? That's one of, we're in a climate emergency right now. And yes, individual residents can kind of do what they can to compost and, you know, conserve. But honestly, we have to bring, um, some of our biggest employers, you know, some of our biggest, um, um, you know, community partners to the table and really see what they're co- going to do, uh, to attack this problem. What are some of your, uh, plans, you know, under a Thompson administration to bring people like IU and Catalan, 
um, to the table and really kind of address climate change. Yeah, I think that um, that's a that's a great thought, Natalia. And as I've been thinking through climate change in the city, I I have really been impressed with the climate action plan that we have. Um, I do think that the Hamilton administration did a good job with that. We had some good council leadership on that as well. Um, and so we we do have a plan moving forward. And I, I think that the city can um, can convene a conversation uh, with our larger businesses, but um, but also I think it is important to um, to engage the rest of the community as well. Um, we can't make anybody do anything unless there is a you know some kind of um, legislation that supports that. Um, but I do think that increasingly um, there can be win-wins, and with the um, with the bipartisan infrastructure bill that's out right now, there are a lot of climate-related um, incentives that we can help translate to um, to some of these businesses and to our residents, um, so that they can play a more significant role. Very good. Um, what do you do? as executive director of Indiana University Center for Rural Engagement? Well, um, I I can tell you what I do as executive director, and I can tell you what the Center for Rural Engagement does, because yes. a lot of people don't know. Yeah. Um, as executive director, you know, again, I am that um, chief executive, and so I help, I I, I convene a process to um, to listen to communities, faculty, and our staff, to set a vision and then um, create strategy to meet that vision. I also um, build the um, build and foster the state level and national level relationships that have sustained us. Mm-hmm. Um, we were founded with an initial um, grant from the Lilly Endowment, um, but we have been really fortunate to have attracted um, additional funding since then. We focus on improving health, quality of place, and community resilience in rural communities by working only on community-initiated projects. Um, So it's very important to the center, and one of our core values is that the university never comes into a community and says, we think you need this, or you should be doing that. Instead, We meet with community members at all levels. Sometimes it's the mayor or a council person. Other times it's a school teacher or a nurse who has a great idea for how they can improve something. Um, Then we bring in, um, we sort of play matchmaker and bring in faculty and students to do either research or um, service and and community-engaged learning to address those issues. We have 300 live projects right now, um, and they are in uh, nearly 90 different communities um, throughout the state. We've really set a model for what it looks like to have um, active and tangible community engagement from a Research One non-land grant university. Can All I right. speak to help um, just to kind of um, tackle that, uh, and then referring back to um, childcare deserts that you referenced earlier. I have um, and have many friends whose family members are moving to Bloomington, but they're older, or or actually of any age. It's so hard to find a general practitioner or healthcare providers to deal with strokes, um, you know, or just any kind of 
um, wait lists sometimes are, are like year long, right? So what are some of your thoughts to, um, both address, um, that issue of health, uh, like healthcare provider desert, um, in a sense that we have, and then also a childcare deserts too, that you referenced earlier. Mm-hmm. I like will tell whoever will listen, like one of my first jobs was at BDLC during undergrad. Loved it. Loved, um, that uh, community, but it was so expensive. It is still expensive. I asked one of my friends um, who has a small child, they're paying upwards of $1,500 a month um, for that. So how, uh, what is your vision to address um, those, those kind of um, issues in our community? Yeah. So let's start with health. Um, We, again, I'm going to talk about the city as a convener because the city doesn't directly provide health care. However, we are the most powerful convener and the prosperity of our community depends on good health care. We are not going to attract or even keep the large employers that we want here that can help um, can, can help with our poverty rate and other things if we don't have access to healthcare. And so I have initiated the conversation and asked for some data on, uh, on the provision of providers and what is standing in the way. I know that the first answer, and, and it is the, maybe it's because I've been in housing so long, but the first answer that I'm always given is there's no housing. So when we try to attract a nurse or a physician, um, there's, there's no place for them to move to. That's not the entire picture though. And we know that there is, um, there's a lack of healthcare providers nationally, but I don't think that we're actually keeping up even with the national trends. And I want to make a, um, an important point here. When there is a scarcity of healthcare providers, my belief is it is likely exacerbating the health equity issues we have. Because what I hear from people when they can get in is, oh, I know, I knew so-and-so who knew so-and-so who connected me this way, and that's how I got in. Well, you shouldn't have to know somebody to have an appointment with your physician. And if you're having a stroke, you don't have time to figure out what that network is, right? And we already know there is, in the state of Indiana and nationally, a a lack of healthcare equity for Black and brown people. So we should be very concerned about this. So- We need to convene a team, I think, to look at what the different factors are. I think we need a very active partnership with HealthNet, um, who's doing a great job, although is a very small organization. And we need to talk about where the deserts are and, um, and what we most need and how can we target that. This is another tremendous opportunity to partner with the university who doesn't want the brain drain that we're getting. We have a medical school, we have a social work school, we have a nursing school, we have a great school of public health. It seems like we could keep some of these students here and find some incentives perhaps to keep them here. When it comes to daycare, and I know I've I've, um, perhaps being a little too long-winded, it is my understanding that already um, the MCCSC is looking at um, free pre-K. That can really take some of the pressure off of the whole daycare system. Um, That doesn't remove the the incredible barrier um, that people have when they have infants. Um, I'm a foster mom, and I had to 
essentially say we couldn't take any infants because um, I can't find infant daycare at the drop of a hat, which is which is how foster care works, right? You're suddenly an infant mom. Um, so when when we have deserts of daycare, then we also are affecting other systems, right? These are these are children we have to say no to in our home. Um, and so I, I am interested in how the city can play a role in partnership on the, um, on the daycare, uh, front. It prevents us from keeping, uh, younger families here. Um, we already know there's a, um, there's a great flight of 25 to 35 year olds from Bloomington. Um, it has something to do with, um, affordable housing and, and being able to, to enter the homeownership market. It also has to do with things like daycare, though. Okay. All right. That makes sense as to why those, and especially that age group, that's an important age group to keep. Absolutely. If you don't have that age group, things kind of dwindle down and die. So that's an important, important age group. At the Arts Alliance um, event, which I attended, it was interesting talking about um, how everybody thought that arts was important. That's what this city's about. And I heard something about um, an incubator mm-hmm. idea for getting younger people interested and in, into the arts at an affordable rate. Tell us more about that because there's people listening that doesn't, doesn't know about that. Yeah. So an incubator would be um, a place that would be um, it, it actually is um, more complex than just a building because um, you have to have programs and um, systems so that you can support uh, the artists that would be in an arts incubator. Um, but it would most likely be a maker space that um, is affordable and allows um, artists who are just getting started a place that um, that they can afford to be and supports with programming um, the business end of what they're doing. Um, so that would be, um, it could be shared services, but it could also be, um, some courses and, and training and, um, in startup businesses that are arts oriented. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, what do you see? Let's, let's envision your administration. How do you see it running? First of all, will you have an open door policy? The public can see you. Will you be accessible? But let's talk about your administration and what that would look like. That's a fun thing to talk about. (laughs) Um, Yes, I actually have an open government plan on my um, website, which is carryforbloomington.com. And since you can spell all of my names wrong very easily, it's K-E-R-R-Y-F-O-R, Bloomington. Um, but you know, I have, I really want to be an incredibly accessible mayor. Um, that's how I'm going to do my job really well is listening to the people and, and hearing what actually works and what doesn't work, um, and what is still needed. And so I do have an open government plan. Um, part of that is that I don't think people should be required to come to city hall to get their business done. Um, and, um, so I have proposed that, um, that the mayor, but also the department heads will each be out in, um, neighborhoods, different neighborhoods every single month, um, so that you can see me where you live and 
you can access the department heads and ask them questions. Um, additionally, um, part of part of that plan is how quickly we respond to public records requests, how we're posting for uh, posting for um, meeting agendas and notices, and um, how we're letting people know what's really happening in the city. With the disappearance of um, most of our media, um, it's really incredibly important that um, not only we have an incredibly transparent government, um, but that we uh, have many different pathways for people to access. Um, so not just an online forum. We have people who um, don't have um, digital literacy. Um, we need we need some human contact. We need somebody who actually answers phones and routes them well. Um, so uh, it's it's as I mentioned at the start of our conversation. You know, the most important thing to me is how we do government. Um, we are the people's government, and so we should be a government that is responsive to and seeking out people. Okay, thank you. Harry, um, just to kind of piggyback off of that, um, what are some of the things that you would like to kind of accomplish in the first 60 days under um, uh, a Thompson administration? Mm -hmm. So I I actually um, will launch uh, hopefully at full speed um, because I've, I've done this before. <laughs> um, and um, so... Incredibly important in the first 60 days, of course, is to establish your leadership team and to um, to ensure that they all uh, begin to put together their plans for um, how their team can contribute to the city's vision moving forward. We'll, of course, um, come into office with um, with a budget that we didn't prepare. And so uh, I would plan to, of course, have uh, a really diverse and talented transition team so that we can be prepared for that. And, um, and we can set priorities within the parameters that are um, sort of gifted to us by the former administration. Um, but then I work uh, with all of my teams in a distributed leadership model, and we work on um, we work on a um, strategic plan that is broken down quarter by quarter. So we would have metrics um, that we would want to accomplish in the first ninety days, um, and each each leadership team member and their department would have um, some accountability for the goals within the ninety days and how we'll get there. And 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 uh, just an extension of that. How do you see working with city council, um, also uh, kind of um, either that first sixty days, and also during budget time, right? So we see um, we've seen some uh, city council members, uh, rightfully, you know, rightfully so, uh, they were elected also, um, you know, really kind of um, holding onto their priorities. How do you see uh, working with each council member um, and their priorities when it comes uh, to budget time? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I really look at how I work in every environment as a team environment and the city council are going to be key team players. Um, they of course have, are the legislative branch. Um, they do have to approve the budget and then they're responsible for it. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. so, um, their voice 
before we get to the meetings will be important. And I think I'm not exactly clear what's happening behind the scenes, but I think there have been some surprises. And um, I am a leader who doesn't love surprises herself unless it's my birthday. Um, and and I also work really hard to not surprise others. Um, so as the department heads are preparing their part of the budget, I think we should have some transparency and um, have a um, have a Q and A session. Um, let let those council members um, work and um, and communicate their priorities so that ahead of time we get to um, have a conversation about what can work and what can't before we get to a point where it has to be yes or no. Okay. Thank you. So sorry. This has been such an interesting conversation, but we're running out of time, Carrie. Our thanks to Democratic mayor candidate, Carrie Thompson, for joining us this evening to discuss her candidacy in the upcoming primaries that once again are held on Tuesday, May 2nd. For more information on candidate, uh, please visit her website, Carrie for Bloomington.com. And it's K-E-R-R-Y for Bloomington.com. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Bring it on. Executive producer is Clarence Boone. Assistant producer is me, Liz Mitchell. Show consultant and WFHB news director is Kate Young. Our program engineer is Chantal La Fontante. Original theme music was created by Jamal Ephraim with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Liz Mitchell. And I'm guest co-inker Natalia Galvin. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.